morning, church. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you. Thank you to our worship team for already bringing us before the presence of Christ. If you have your Bible with you or your phone, go ahead and open up to Revelation chapter 7, and we will be looking at the first eight verses today in Revelation 7. That'll be our dominant text. Of course, we'll be looking at many other scriptures as well as we study this passage. But let's begin this morning just by reading this together. Revelation chapter 7 in the first eight verses. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun and the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000. Sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh. 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon. 12,000 from the tribe of Levi. 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I would just ask that as we come to this text and we look at this passage as we've been studying through this amazing book of Revelation, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit we know that your Holy Spirit is among us. I pray that your Holy Spirit would enlighten our minds, would open up the text to us that we might have understanding, and that we might walk away from here challenged in our faith. Your word, your living, true, inerrant, inspired, authoritative word is our guide for faith and practice. May we understand it today, and may we be quick to live by it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's walk through this passage together, as is our custom. We're going back to verse 1 in chapter 7. And here uh, we see John describing what he's seen and what a sight it is, church. John says, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. I want you to try to picture this in your mind. What a movie this would be. Holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. What's happening here? John sees these four angels holding back the wind. Now, what was that like? I have no idea. That's all the information we're giving. Is that an angel standing at each of the four corners of the earth or four directions, let's just say for the sake of argument, north, south, east, and west, and, and an angel standing there like bracing, holding back the wind? Uh, what am I supposed to do with this? It keeps pushing on me, right? Is it that? Uh, was it, could they just, with a finger, hold back the wind? How, with a word, were they holding back the wind? I have no idea. Must have been quite 
a sight, though, that John sees. We can safely assume that the angels are doing this at the command of God. Angels are not sovereign. Angels are servants of God. So it is God's sovereignty, it's God's authority that is allowing them to do this task. God is sovereign over creation, not angels. But these angels are given authority, at least in this moment, during this time. Angels controlling the wind. It's an interesting idea, isn't it? How many of you know that there is so much that we don't know about the spiritual realm? <laughs> there is so much. We're given glimpses in Scripture of the spiritual realm, and some of them are just trippy. Like, do you remember the story of the Old Testament where the angel shows up and he says, well, I would have been here a lot sooner, but I got delayed. <laughs> What's that all about? How was he delayed? Like, we know angels don't marry, so it wasn't that his wife gave him a grocery list coming out the door, but something, something, that, something happens that delays him. There's so much that we don't understand about the spiritual realm. There's so much mystery for us to embrace, and we need to be comfortable with that. We need to be comfortable not having all of the, the answers. But angels here are controlling the wind. Later in Revelation, I'll give you just a little, another glimpse here. Later in Revelation, we're going to see an angel who's put in charge of fire. And another passage later in Revelation, uh, there are go there's going to be an angel that's in charge of the waters. But here, there are four angels holding back the wind. I just love that image. And, and why are they holding back the wind? That's the question we should be asking. What is it about the wind? I mean, when you're sitting outside and it's a hot day and a cool breeze comes by, that's a good thing, isn't it? I mean, you, you know, on, a, on a, a, a hot July day, some of which we've experienced recently, and the sun is beating down, you find that shade tree in your backyard, at least I do, and, and you sit down and you enjoy the shade, and then that gentle breeze comes. And that's a beautiful thing. That's not what's happening here. You see, wind in Scripture is often very destructive. It's an image of destruction and, and, and sometimes judgment. Let me just show you just one passage. There were many that I found in the Old Testament, but here's just one to give you a taste here. This is God speaking. He says, I will bring against Elam, a nation, the four winds... From the four quarters of heaven. Does that sound familiar? Sounds like what we're talking about in Revelation chapter 7. I'm going to bring against Elam four winds against the four quarters of heaven, and I will scatter them to the four winds, and there will not be a nation where Elam's exiles do not go. So this is destruction. This is the destructive power of the wind. It's, it's judgment. And here in Revelation chapter 7, it's the destruction of these great winds that the angels are preventing. On the authority, by the authority of God, they were assigned to hold back the wind that was going to bring destruction and judgment. Well, what happens next? Let's keep going in Revelation 7. Verse 2 says, Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun from the east and the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. 
That's interesting. This, this new angel that comes on the scene, we have the four angels holding back the winds. All of a sudden, one comes up from the east, and he seems to have been given authority over the other four. And he says, don't, don't let it go yet, guys. Hang on. Hang on to it, right? And he says, we've got to wait for a little bit. That's what he's saying here. Don't harm the earth or the sea or the trees. Don't let that wind go until we have sealed the servants of God. And where's that seal going to be located? Right on their foreheads. We've got to talk about that a little bit. This angel is carrying the seal of the living God. What, what is that? What is the seal of the living God that's going to go on the foreheads of the servants? Let's take a look at it. Uh, there's a lot of Old Testament precedents for this. Let me just show you a few things. There's so much more I could tell you. Isaiah 44.5 says, some will say, this is an Isaiah, Isaiah's prophecy. Some will say, I belong to the Lord. Others will call themselves by the name of Jacob. This is the people of God that this prophecy is about. Still others will write on their hand, proof text that God likes tattoos, just kidding. Um, proof text, right? But anyways, they will write on their hand, the Lord's. This is how they're going to identify themselves as being the people of Jehovah. They're actually going to write, I belong, the Lord. Remember, whenever you see that capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, it's Jehovah. They're actually going to write Jehovah's, the Lord's, right? Right on their hand. And we'll take the name Israel. Ezekiel chapter 9, I'm not going to show you this passage, but God marks a righteous remnant to protect them from judgment. He puts a mark on them. To set them aside, to protect them from judgment. In our passage, in our passage here in Revelation 7, the servants of God are sealed actually on their foreheads. So Bible scholar Grant Osborne writes about this idea, and he says, The placement on the forehead made it a public proclamation that the person belonged to God. The mark, this is so interesting, the mark was the letter Tav. It's the last letter in the Hebrew alphabet, which in ancient script would appear as an X or a T, which to Christians would symbolize what? Christ or the cross, Bible scholar Grant Osborne says. This is in direct contrast to the mark of the beast. We haven't seen that yet. That's coming. So this mark sealed by the living God that would have looked like an X or a T on their foreheads is in direct contrast to the mark of the beast that's coming soon in the text. This is in direct contrast to the mark of the beast denoting the person belonging to Satan. Here's the point. Don't miss this. It is clear that there is no middle ground. You either belong to Christ or you belong to Satan. And that will determine your eternal destiny. The point that's being made in this verse is that God's people are his treasured possession. And he identifies his people with his mark because they are indeed his treasured possession. Now, we know from other passages in the New Testament that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And I don't want to move on from this without making this point because this is so important. This is a part of our salvation. This is a part of our eternal security, if you will. This idea that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20 through 22 say, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. 
That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Paul writes to the Ephesians. He talks about this often. I'm just showing you some of the passages. Ephesians 1 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. Don't, don't just fly past that because this is how it happens. When you, you, talking to you guys out here, when you heard the gospel and you responded in belief, this is what happened. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Every single person in this room who's trusted in Christ for their salvation, you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. That's not something that can go away. That's not something that can leave you. You have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. He is our guarantee. Why do we believe in this doctrine of eternal security? Well, I think this is a pretty good passage to look to. The Holy Spirit is our guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Thank you, pastor and others. <laughs> he is our guarantee until we take over, until we cross that border and we're on the other side of this, and we claim it in reality, the Holy Spirit is our guarantee that it's going to happen. It's a sure thing, church. Later in Ephesians, Paul also writes, he says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by, what you, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Looking back at Revelation chapter 7, we need to get back to the primary text here. In verse 4, John writes that he sees, I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. So here is one of the big questions, church, that people always ask of this prophecy. I'm, I'm trying to do a couple of things throughout this study. First of all, my commitment to you in the beginning, and I'm sticking to this, is that I'm not going to chart graph out timelines. Some of you wish I would, because some of you have been asking me questions. Like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Did we miss something? What the rapture hasn't happened yet. Well, I'm just preaching the text of Revelation. You want the rapture, go to Matthew, go to Thessalonians, right? And, and, but, but I'm just preaching the text here, okay? So I'm, not, I'm avoiding the common, popular, there are plenty of books. Let me put it that way. There are plenty of books that you can pick up and buy and read if you want timelines and charts of the end times. That's not what we're doing here. We're studying this book, and we're seeing what this book says. But, on the other hand, I do want to try to address some of the popular questions that come out of this book. So here's one of them. Who are the 144,000? Who are these folks, right? Well, there's basically two very popular theories that I found looking at a lot of commentaries. And, and it won't shock you by this time for me to say Bible scholars don't all agree. <laughs> right? I mean, that's, that's not a shocking statement at this point. But these are two popular possibilities of who is in this crowd, the 144,000. Here's the first one. The 144,000 are Jewish Christians. 
One view is that these are Messianic Jews from each of the 12 tribes. And you can see why this is a popular theory. I mean, the verses that we're not going to, t to study, right, the verses 5 through 8 that break down where they're all from, it would certainly imply that they're actually from these tribes. And so you can see the thinking behind this. And there's actually a lot more evidence to support this theory. But this theory suggests that there will be a large-scale awakening among the Jewish people yet to come. And that's exciting to me because I have friends, I know people who work in Messianic Jewish ministries, and this is what they hope for, it's what they pray for, it's what they work for. And this theory suggests that yet to come in history, there will be a large-scale awakening where the Jewish people will realize that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Amen? And, and we should hope and pray for that and desire that. We should desire that among all people, but certainly the Jewish people. And, and so there's a lot of evidence for this. There's a, there's a lot of biblical support for this theory. Let me just show you a couple things. We don't have time to dig through everything. And unless, can we all agree just to be here till 8 o'clock tonight? Can we? Nah, nah. Yeah, you guys would talk a good game right now, but come about noon, I'd be the only one in this room. So, all right, we'll just keep going with what I have planned then. So there is biblical support for this. Jehovah says through the prophet Jeremiah, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers. Don't tune out on this passage. Every bit of it's important. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother say, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. You catch that? They shall all know me. That's what the text says. This is yet to come. This hasn't happened yet in history, church. They shall all know me, from the least of them to the, gr the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. That's a powerful passage that we have to do something with in our thinking. And then in Romans, just so you know, it's not just an Old Testament thing. Those of you, you know, I mean, certainly, right, we, you know, our faith and practice is from all 66 books of the Bible, but Paul re-ups this idea in Romans. He says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial, listen to this, a partial hardening has come upon Israel. Don't we see that right now? Jews who don't recognize Jesus as their Messiah, a partial hardening has come upon Israel. Until what? The fullness of the Gentiles has come in. When is that happening? Right now. Because we have, I don't know, I'm going to take a stab, 150 non-Jews sitting in this room right now trusting in Jesus. You're all part of this. This prophecy that Paul's giving here. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them, and I will take away their sins. So here's where I'm going to land with this, at least for today. And my thinking, like yours, is growing and developing as I study God's word more and more. 
I'm not sure that this means that the 144,000 that John sees in Revelation chapter 7, I'm not sure that that means that they're all Jewish Christians, but it seems pretty clear to me from these passages that God still has a plan for the redemption of Israel. I don't know how else to read these passages, Jeremiah and Romans, than to think that God still has a plan to redeem his people, and by his people in this context, I mean the nation of Israel. Now, let me give you the second theory, because I wouldn't, it wouldn't be right if I didn't, because this is actually the one that's held by the majority of conservative Bible scholars today, guys that we, and ladies that we would look at and say, that, you know, they're in our camp theologically. This is actually the view that most of them hold, this next one, which is the 144,000 represent all believers, both Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles now, here's, here's the thinking here. Gentiles are now welcome as full converts to the true faith of Israel, and as such, we are recipients of Israel's promised inheritance. We have been, well, let me not steal his thunder. I, I was going to use a phrase here, but I'm going to wait because there's a quote coming where he uses it. So let me instead, though, take you to what Paul says in, uh, in Ephesians chapter 2, where he writes, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles, you guys, me, in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, okay, it's just what Jews called Gentiles back then, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time, before Christ, Paul's saying here, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without, and without God in the world. All that's bad. Everything I just read was bad. That's who we used to be. But look at what Paul says next. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Amen and amen. God has marked us. He has marked us, Gentiles, as his own. Jews and Gentiles alike are now part of the spiritual Israel. Bible scholar Craig Keener, just a tremendous uh, conservative Bible scholar wrote this. He said, this does not mean that God replaced Israel with Gentile Christianity. It's not an either-or church. And so often I hear this conversation framed this way. That's why I'm drilling down on this point for you. I hear it's either, oh, it's the Jews or the, no, it's, it's not an either-or, it's a both-and. Bible scholar Craig Keener says, this does not mean that God replaced Israel with Gentile Christianity. It means that Gentile Christians have been grafted into, love that image, grafted into the heritage of Israel and can speak of Abraham as our father. They recognize a spiritual heritage in the history of God's people that runs deeper than any ethnic to which we might otherwise claim allegiance. This idea is backed up in Scripture so many times. Just a few examples. Paul writes to the Romans, he says, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. That's an important statement. Nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not 
from man, but from God. And Paul writes to the Galatians and says, And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. What's important about that passage is Paul is writing to Gentile Christians. And he's saying, you are the Israel of God. Peter writes to the church and says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, why is that passage significant? Because Peter is using phrases here, talking to Gentile Christians, and he's using phrases that are all taken from the Old Testament about Israel. He's, a, he's adopting those phrases and adapting them to the church. So back to the question, because I've given you two competing theories and they're both popular ones. Back to the question, who are the 144,000? I have no idea. Don't you love hearing that from me? Some of you are thinking, man, this guy is our, our pastor, and he, how often does he say he has no idea? Here's my thing. I'm comfortable with the mystery. I'm comfortable not knowing. Now, if you're not, if you look at this, you know, I have to know. I, I have to pick one or the other then pick the one that makes the most sense to you. It's the best advice I have for you. Because both of them are backed by a lot of people like us who have studied the scriptures their entire lives, uh, and I'm talking three, four, or five decades, taught in academic circles, and there are people on both sides of this who would say, well, nope, they're Messianic Jews. Nope, they're Jews and Gentiles. I come down to it and I say, does it really matter? Here is the bigger question to me. This, to me, is such more of an important question. The bigger question for me when I come to this text is why is this a part of the vision at all? Why does John even see this? Why, why does God show John this? Because there has to be a reason that this is included in Revelation. And Bible scholar Ian Paul to that question wrote this. He said, the list therefore portrays God's people as a community of the Messiah who have kept themselves pure in worship and thus stayed true to their calling as a priestly nation equipped for the holy war that they are to face. Let that soak in for just a moment. I believe that the 144,000 is included in this vision that John sees as a reminder that the church of Jesus Christ is alive and well at the end of time. This is included so that we would know, church, we will not be defeated. We will not waste away to nothing. We will not, as sometimes we're told, diminish until there's nothing left of us. The church of Christ will be triumphant. That's why this is here. Because God wants to reassure John, who's in the midst of persecution, he's on the island of Patmos in exile, and this letter is going to travel around Asia, first of all to these seven churches, and we studied them, we know the persecutions they faced, and it's going to go for the next at least 2,000 years, maybe nuclear door. The church, Jesus said, 
I will build my church, and the gates of hell won't even cause such as distributing tracts all over the city. And he held daily noon prayer meetings during the Civil War, little thing that happened in our country's history during this time. He refused to fight, saying, in this respect, I am a Quaker. But he worked through the YMCA and the United States Christian Commission to evangelize the Union troops. In all this, he tried to mix effective social work with evangelism. In the summer of 1873, Moody left for Europe to preach. After preaching for two years in England, Scotland, Ireland, Moody returned to America as an internationally famous revivalist. Of his fame, Moody admitted, I know perfectly well wherever I go and preach that there are many better preachers than I am. All that I can say about it is that the Lord uses me. That's all any preacher should ever say. Immediately, calls for crusades poured in. During these crusades, Moody pioneered many techniques of evangelism. And I thought this was interesting reading this because we still do a lot of this type of stuff. A house-to-house canvas of residents prior to the crusade, an ecumenical approach enlisting cooperation from all local churches and evangelical lay leaders regardless of their denominational affiliations. Supported by the business community, the rental of a large central building, and the use of an inquiry room for those wanting to repent. Alternating between Europe and America, Moody preached to more than 100 million people. He used every opportunity to preach. When the managers of the 1893 World's Exhibition in Chicago decided to keep the fair open on Sundays, many Christian leaders called for a boycott, not Moody. He said, let us open so many preaching places and present the gospel so attractively that people want to come and hear it. On one single day, over 130,000 people attended evangelistic meetings coordinated by Moody. Through his revival work, he saw the need for an army of Bible-trained lay people to continue the work of inner-city evangelism. Listen to what he said. He said, if this world is going to be reached, I am convinced that it must be done by men and women of average talent. Look around you. Look at me. Average talent. Moody said, that's that's who's going to do it. After all, there are comparatively few people in this world who have great talents. In 1879, he established Northfield Seminary for Girls, followed two years later by Mount Hermon School for Boys. In 1880, Moody invited adults and college-age youth to the first of many summer Bible conferences at his home in Northfield. Finally, in 1886, Moody started the Bible Work Institute of the Chicago Evangelization Society, renamed Moody Bible Institute, shortly after his death, where one day the famous Ken and Abigail Steele would graduate from. It's written right there. Well, all right, I added that in. Despite a tireless schedule, he preached six sermons a day. I got to tell you, as a preacher, I can't even fathom that. I am done. When I leave here Sunday afternoon, I'm like done mentally. Six sermons a day, just a month before he died. He loved to spend time with his children and grandchildren at their Northfield, Massachusetts farm. 
where he left this life for the next. Church, here's the point. Dwight Moody is another example, like we saw with Amy Carmichael last week, of a life that is fully surrendered to this mission that every single one of us in this room has been called to. Jesus has laid a great mission before all of us, and we are not to be passive. We are in the middle of a war. It is time to advance the gospel here at Fellowship It is time for this church to leave the building and to advance the gospel in our communities. Time is short. For the glory of Christ, we need to get this job done. Would you bow your heads? Let's pray. Worship team, come and join me. Father, to this end we pray, and we're thankful for your word today. I thank you so much for these verses in Revelation 7. Lord, I thank you for the other scriptures we've looked at today. God, we really want to be a people where your word governs our faith and practice. And and what we see in your word and what we see in our own history is a radical commitment to the gospel that advances the kingdom into the darkness. Lord, we want to be a part of that here at Fellowship. I I want to be a part of that. Like everyone else in this room, we have no idea how much more time we're going to be given in our lives But Lord, may our lives count for the kingdom. That's our prayer today. In Jesus' name.